Good morning, everybody. January 2020, also known as Cardio Month. I have put on so much weight. I actually got on the weighing scales during the week, and I had to get off and just examine it to make sure it was working okay. I've gone up a couple of notches on my belt. And it's fry-ups. I love fry-ups. Um, so Anna says she's hiding the frying pan. Self-will. I don't have any. Let's the small talk. Revelation chapter 7. So in our last study, Revelation, we had just finished chapter 6. And we saw how John watched um, the Lamb. He watched Jesus begin to open the first of um, the first of the seals on these scrolls. We covered the first six. And as each scroll, uh, sorry, as each seal was broken, we saw how a, a new judgment was poured out upon the earth. And it, it certainly wasn't a barrel of laughs, was it? It was, um, in fact, John finished chapter six with, with a, an important question. He spoke about how great the, the, how great the day of their wrath has come. And then he says, who can stand it? Who can stand? You can see that in verse 17. So it was, it was a hard message to hear. But the situation certainly was not hopeless. And remember, this is future events. Because the opening of these seals was still, still very much a measured judgment by God. And as we go through these chapters, we will see God's grace within his judgment. Because God will still reach out to the lost during the most horrific parts of the tribulation. He will send wave after wave of evangelists. We have the 144,000 witnesses which we will be looking at in this morning's text, they will be preaching the gospel during the tribulation. We have the two witnesses of chapter 11. They make their way to Jerusalem, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. And they'll, they'll perform incredible miracles. And the whole world will see this happening. Um, so there'll probably still be Wi-Fi during the, during the tribulation because everyone will watch it happening. Then in chapter 14, verse 6, we see an angel uh, flying through the sky proclaiming the good news, that salvation is found in Christ alone. And of course, we have the, the multitude of people who will put their faith in Christ after the rapture of the church, many of whom we'll see they, they will be killed for their faith. Um, yeah, they, 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 will, they will witness the rapture. They will witness us disappear from this earth. And, you know, remember what Peter said, that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And that is God's heart for everyone. And in his great mercy, God, as I said, he's going to reach out to, to all people who will listen. Yeah, as we saw at the end of chapter 6, even when people knew that this was God's judgment, they still hid themselves from the truth, from Jesus. 
Now, in chapter 7, the scene shifts from, from God's judgment to God's protection. John is now going to introduce us to two different people groups. Uh, the first group are, are Jewish. We're told that quite clearly. And the second group are Gentiles. So that's, that's you and I, unless you're a Messianic Jew. I don't think there's any among us. Um, and he's going to speak about how God is going to protect them and use them during the, the, the seven years of the tribulation period. So chapter 7, unlike chapter 6, is very much a chapter of hope. It is also the, the first parenthetical passage of this book. In other words, chapter 7 contains additional information about what will take place during the opening of these six seals, which we've covered in chapter 6. So chapter 7 is looking back and just filling us in on more information about what will happen during this time. So in effect, the pause button has now been pressed before the seventh seal is opened. And as I said, we're given additional background information about this time. So let's look at today's first verse. We're going to cover the whole of chapter 7 today. So verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. So after this, so this is after Jesus had taken the scroll from his father's hand, after he has opened these first six uh, seals, and after God's judgment has been poured out upon a Christ-rejecting a Christ -rejecting world. After these things, the Apostle Paul, he receives another vision. And he sees these, these four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, or the, the four points of the, comp the compass. And they're holding back the four winds which brings with it the idea that these angels have been given the power, have been given the power by God to affect the entire earth. So they have a global authority, a global effect. But who are these four winds? Who do they represent? Now, some believe that they are the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we saw in chapter 6, and that is certainly a possibility. Others believe that these four winds represent God's judgment. And we certainly see examples of this when we study the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 1 describes the wicked as being like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, and I continue in verses 4 and 5 of, of Psalm 1. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. So here we have wind and judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteousness. But, <clears throat> but why are these angels holding back God's judgment? Why is there a, a pause here? Well, we're given the answer in verse 2. And John describes how he saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea. So John describes 
another angel. This is a separate angel, and he is ascending from the sunrise. You know, it's just another way of saying that he is rising up from the east. And the angel was, was holding a seal of the living God. So this points to the angel's authority. And then the angel shouts with a loud voice to the four angels who were holding back the wind. Um, and he says to them, do not harm the earth, verse 3, or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So this is the same type of seal that we saw in chapters 5 and 6. And I think I have, we have a graphic of, of what these seals uh, possibly look like. So there's your scroll and there's your seals on them. Now, in John's day, a king or the king's anointed um, official, he would use a seal to signify ownership or to protect legal documents. So it's basically just to prove that the letter is from, a, from for example, the king and it hasn't been tampered with. So these individuals are protected during the tribulation period. They're protected because God has a role for them and he has sealed them. And we will see later on during the fifth trumpet when stinging locusts descend upon the earth, we see how they are not allowed to touch those who have been sealed. So they can't attack them, they can't affect them. And notice how they are referred to as servants of God. So this indicates that these individuals have already been redeemed. So these are saved people. And as Christians, we too are sealed. You know, Paul told the church in Ephesus that those who, tr those who have put their trust in Jesus as the Lord and Savior also possess the seal of God. And he goes on to, to describe how we're sealed, that that seal is the Holy Spirit who lives within each and every believer. And it's good to know that God has pla placed his seal upon us. It's a seal that will not be removed. And it is God's guarantee that we belong to him and that the one day he will bring us safely home to be with him. It's a guarantee. And now in verse 4, John writes how he heard the number of those who were being sealed. So he's given a number. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So just to make sure that there's no mistake, that there's no confusion as to the identity of these 144,000, we are told that they are from the 12 tribes of Israel, beginning with the tribe of Judah and ending with the tribe of Benjamin, 1,200 from each tribe. So when we look at verses 4 to 8, we are, we are given the list. Um, I'm not going to go through them. Um, they're there in verses 4 to 8. You can see them yourself. But you might have noticed here in verse 6 that we have mentioned a tribe called Manasseh. 
Now, Manasseh was not one of the original tribes of, of Israel. In fact, he is one of Joseph's sons. I think he was the eldest. Also notice that the tribe of Dan is missing, nowhere, nowhere to be found. So Manasseh has taken Dan's place. Why has this happened? Now, <clears throat> Scripture does not tell us conclusively. We, we, we can't say 100% why. But there is a reference in Genesis 49, verses 16 and 17, where, where Jacob speaks of his own son, Dan. And he says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. Now, most commentators believe that Jacob here is describing how the tribe of Dan, how the tribe of Dan is a liability, a liability to the nation of Israel. Judges 18.30 describes how the people of Dan set up carved images for themselves. Judges 18. So it was the tribe of Dan who brought idolatry into the camp of Israel. They were the ones who did it. Which caused the writer, as, um, as Genesis explains, that causes the writer to fall backwards. In other words... Dan's actions caused Israel to backslide. This tribe's action caused, um, led Israel into idolatry. Now, we can't say for certain, as I said, but maybe this is why Dan is not on the listing. But where are these tribes today? Because if you know Jewish history, Old Testament history, remember that when Solomon died... The, the Israel's, Israelis, um, they divided into two kingdoms, and each with its own king. The southern kingdom was called Judah, with Jerusalem as its capital, and which included just two tribes, and that was Judah and Benjamin. The northern territory, the northern kingdom, was known as Israel, and it consisted of the remaining ten tribes. But in 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom. And they took all these ten tribes into captivity. And they would never, ever return to Israel. So we may not know where these tribes are, but they certainly are not hidden from God. He knows exactly where they are. And in this time, in the time of the 144,000, God is going to call these men back to Israel. He has a purpose for them. And we see that purpose in Isaiah 27, verse 13. Now, there are, there are a number of groups today who claim to be the, this 144,000. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses believe that they're, that they're it. The, the Seventh-day Adventists, and there's many other groups as well that claim to be these people. Yet the Word of God is clear. It's crystal clear. They are Jewish people. They are not Gentile. And we will see them again later on in chapter 14, where they are described to us in greater detail than they are here in chapter 7. And chapter 14, verses 4 and 5, it says... 
that these are men who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So the 144,000 are Jewish men who, who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior during, during the tribulation period. And some commentators believe that uh, Israel will see these two witnesses proclaiming the gospel, performing miracles within Jerusalem during the tribulation period, and they will give their life to the Lord. It will be these 144,000. And God will use them. He will use these men to proclaim the good news. They will be instrumental in the conversion of both Jews and Gentiles alike. And they will survive the, the seal, the trumpet, and the bold judgments. And they will enter into the millennium kingdom, just as the Lord promised through the, through the prophets. The apostle Paul made a reference to this promise in his letter to the church in Rome, in Romans 9, he said, and he quotes Isaiah, and uh, he says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, concerning the Jewish people, and I quote, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So this is God, this is the tribulation period. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would, be, we, have been, we would have been like Sodom and before like Gomorrah. In other words, unless the Lord keeps a remnant of his people, remember we're talking about Jewish people here, they would disappear during the tribulation period. But he will fulfill every promise made to his people. The promises that he made to the forefathers, to Abraham, the promises he made to Isaac and to Jacob, they still stand today. You know, these are unconditional promises that God made to Israel. And they will never, ever be revoked. Never. They are final. And one day, God will bring Israel back into a relationship with himself into a relationship with Jesus. Now, the nation of Israel will go through a lot of pain and torment before that happens. A lot of Jewish people will be killed, but it is going to happen. Paul wrote to uh, the church in, in Rome, Romans chapter 11. He said, I know we, we touched on this, I think it was last, uh, our last study in Revelation. He told the church here, look, I don't want you to be ignorant of this fact. He goes on to say, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have, has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. The deliverer will come from Zion, referring to Jesus. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, a mystery, we see it sometimes, Paul speaks about mysteries in the New Testament. A mystery is just something that hasn't been previously revealed. That's what it means in the biblical context. 
but has now been made known, has now been revealed through the New Testament. And the mystery that Paul is talking of here is God's plan for Israel in relation to those Gentiles who had come to know Jesus. So this is during Paul's time. So there is a partial hardening, Paul speaks, of, speaks about it here, upon the people of Israel. But this hardening, it is certainly not forever. It will continue for a while, but as Paul explains, it will be lifted when the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now what does that mean? God has a number. And when the last Gentile gives his life to the Lord, when he accepts Jesus as his Savior, the rapture happens. The rapture takes place. Then God will focus his work on his people, on Israel. And that will happen right after the rapture at the very start of the tribulation period. So now in verses 9 and 17... John introduces to the second group of people here. So these are the, these are the Gentiles people, so non-Jewish people, who will be saved during the tribulation period. So look at verse 9. So after this, so this is possibly a, a new vision that, that, uh, that John received. So after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And then he describes how they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So there is a clear distinction between these two groups. John is clearly referring to Gentiles. Compared to the Jews who are one people and one nation, John describes many peoples from many nations. And notice how they're wearing white robes. And th these robes represent righteousness. And it's the same robes that were worn by the martyrs uh, in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 9, if you want to flick across 6, verse 9, it says, Those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had been born. So, they were given white robes. Except in chapter 7, they are no longer under the altar in heaven asking the Lord, look, God, how long is it going to be before you take avenge for our blood? They're not doing that now. In chapter 7, they're standing before the throne of the Lamb and they're holding palm branches in their hands. Now, in John's day, palm branches would have being waved by people as a, as a celebration for a special event or, or a victory. And we, we remember that from, um, from the Gospels. Remember how the crowds, they, they waved the palm branches as they celebrated Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And, and they cried out, and this was recorded for us in the Gospels, in John 12, 13, they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And here in Revelation, we see these martyred saints doing the same thing in heaven, celebrating the Lord. And then John in verse 10, he records their song. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is a praise 
that clearly states that God is the source of salvation, not man. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save myself. And that's why John told us in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 2, he said, referring to Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So propitiation means to appease or satisfy the wrath of God against man's sin. And that's how we need to see Christ. We know that God is a God of, of justice. And because he is a God of justice, it is impossible for him to be unju unjust in the dealings with sin. So God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the perfect, the final sacrifice for your sin and for mine. Because church, we, we needed rescuing, didn't we? We were lost. We were desperate in our sin. And that's why Jesus took the full wrath of God. And he satisfied God's wrath against us. He satisfied it completely. Because he took our sins upon himself. Jesus gave his life so that we might live our lives through him. And by his death, we who were once enemies of God have now become his friends. Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he said in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he went on to say, look, this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works. And then he finished by saying, look, so none of us can boast about it. None of us. It was Christ who died for the ungodly. We cannot claim any credit because we did not do anything to earn or deserve our salvation. Absolutely nothing. We brought nothing to the table of salvation except our sin and our repentance. Therefore, we cannot boast in anything except the cross. It's all we can boast in. And here we see this, this great multitude of Gentile believers acknowledging this truth. And we have a look in verse 11. We see the heavens respond. We see all of heaven respond to their declaration that salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. Verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God. Heaven is so overwhelmed by God's glory, by his incredible grace, the grace that he continues to pour out upon you and I daily. They're so overwhelmed by this, that they fall on their faces before the throne and they worship. Verse 12. And this is what they say. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
you know, another sevenfold worship of God. And then their, their praise ends with another amen, which means truly or so be it. Now, in an attempt in verse 13, in an attempt to prompt a response from John, so he's just looking for a response. The angel is not looking for an answer. The, the elder, I should say. One of the elders asks him a question, verse 13. And the question is, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And then we see John's response to the elder in verse 14. John says, and I said to him, sir, you know. And then we see the elders reply. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. But how have they done that? We're told, in the blood of the Lamb. So these are not church-age believers. These are the tribulation saints. And during the tribulation period, they have come to faith. They have either been martyred or have died as a result of, um, of war or disease or famine. And their numbers will increase as the tribulation period progresses. So more and more people will die. And this reminds me of Paul's encouragement to the church in Rome when he asked them in, in Romans 8, 20, 35, he said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he begins to throw some examples to, to the Romans. He said, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, which speaks of destitution or danger or sword? So here Paul is speaking about the worst things that could, could, could happen to anybody. With this word sword speaking of, of death, of execution. And it was the only thing on Paul's list, list that he had not yet experienced, but soon would. And I'm sure most of us would consider death, as I know I would, as the, as the worst thing on that list. Yet death brings us before our God, doesn't it? Death brings us into heaven. It brings us home, just as it has for these tribulation saints. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Therefore, here, points to what John has already said in verse 14. So because they have washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb, because they've accepted Jesus as their Savior, they are allowed to stand before the throne of God. Death has taken them, death has taken them out of the tribulation. And now they have the privilege of serving God. So just as the 144,000 are serving God on earth, those in heaven will serve God both day and night, these tribulation saints. Now, we don't know what this service will look like. We're not told. But I'm sure it's going to be perfect. 
It's going to be wonderful. And now we are given a description of those who have been martyred. Verse 16 to 17. I say in very Dacia when I say martyred, don't I? Martyred by. Verses 16 to 17. I'm so self-conscious. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And this is probably one of my favorite verses in, in, in the book of Revelation. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So these are a group of Gentiles who, have, who had, during the tribulation period, they've refused to worship Satan, the, the Antichrist. They've refused to take the mark of the beast. And they have suffered because of it. They have, they have lost their life. Others, as I said, they would have been killed during the wars or famine or, or, or pestilence. And here is a group of people. They have experienced unimmanageable horrors. But in heaven, John describes how their earthly sorrows will be removed, taken away from them. No longer a memory. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 65, 17. He said, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Grief, heartache, pain, they won't remember it. Their suffering will not be will be over forever. In heaven, they will have no need because they will be completely satisfied. God himself, he will wipe away every tear. You know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful promise, isn't it? And a reality for every person who has already given their life to the Lord. So how should we respond? So in conclusion... How should we respond to this truth? To God's amazing grace. To the wonderful future that awaits you and I. It is to worship God, isn't it? How can we not give him thanks and praise? How can we not long to be in his presence? To worship him. To give him all the glory and thanks. Praise him for the sacrifice that he made. A sacrifice that was made possible, that makes it possible for us, as John tells us, to, to boldly proclaim that you and I as believers are children of God. We belong to him. That will never, ever change. 